We're going to continue now our study of Second Timothy with verse 8 of this chapter 1. Verse 8 of chapter 1 of Second Timothy. Paul wrote this letter to encourage Timothy to fulfill his responsibility as the leader or a leader of the churches of Ephesus. But there's a broader message in Second Timothy, a message that applies far beyond just Timothy. And it hits us where we, where we live. Believers must persevere in faithfulness in the face of hardship. Believers must persevere in faithfulness in the face of hardship. I realize that the idea of hardship is relative. It's relative from culture to culture, from nation to nation, from individual to individual. There are even times when hardship is relative when considering the different phases of any one given individual's life. For this reason, it's not particularly wise to focus on specific hardships that Timothy faced, or even what Paul was facing at the time, although we've mentioned some of the historical context there. Timothy is facing hardships from from within the the churches there. Paul is certainly facing hardships from without. He's in prison awaiting execution. Evaluating hardship on a personal level requires objectivity that most of us don't possess. I've noticed this countless times. One day you're facing the death of a loved one or maybe the loss of a job or maybe some interpersonal crisis, and you handle it with dignity, maturity, and faithfulness. And then the very next morning we walk out into the front yard and find that the paper boy has thrown the paper underneath the car. We, we reach under it. We can't get it. We've got to go back inside, get the broom, come back out, reach under there. By the time we get back inside, the, the knees of our pants are both wet and our coffee is cold, and we curse in a way with the string of profanities that would have made Richard Pryor embarrassed where he's still living. Isn't that funny? Isn't that ironic? We can handle the big things sometimes, but then the paper getting wet causes us to lose it. Hardships are, hardships are relative, and enduring hardship is relative. In 1967, you might have thought yourself to be suffering because you were watching the Super Bowl on a black-and-white TV instead of uh, your neighbor's RCA color TV right down the street. Forty years later, we suffer because we didn't get to see it in high definition on that 50-inch Sony TV with the Bose sound system. One way to keep things in perspective, I think, is to travel. And I'm not talking about traveling to La Jolla or to Beverly Hills. That gives you the improper perspective. Mission Mission trips tend to get me refocused. A subscription to the Voice of the Martyrs is not a bad thing either. But the best way to keep suffering and hardship in perspective is to keep the cross of Jesus Christ in focus. More on that in just a moment. Read with me again the first seven verses. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, 
but of power and love and discipline. Notice one more thing about that verse that I didn't mention to you last time. Paul's not saying so much to Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but he gave you, he didn't give you the the power of love and and discipline, sound mind, and so forth. The word is us there. All of us. Paul and Timothy both. Uh, Again, I I mentioned it in a minute, but let me just say it now. The the whole timid Timothy thing is a bit overdone. Part of it is from this verse, but Paul's saying for all of us. He didn't give any of us a spirit of timidity, not just Timothy. Paul's prayers were regular and included thanksgiving to God for his good friend and fellow minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that would be Timothy. He prayed those prayers with a clear conscience in his ministry following the pattern of those who had gone before him in, the, in context is, is perhaps the, the prophetic ministry of those Old Testament prophets. Paul longs to see Timothy face to face. They are friends. They have ministered together for the better part of more than a decade. But in the meantime, he encourages his younger partner in ministry to exercise the power of God in love with sound judgment rather than with a spirit of cowardice. Now let's look at verse 8. And it is in verse 8 that we'll I'll restrict my comments tonight. Just this one verse. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. What Paul's saying here is in view of the Holy Spirit's enablement that was just mentioned in verse 7, the, the, the spirit of power and love and discipline. Paul instructed Timothy not to let others intimidate him. This word, therefore, in, in verse 8, it's the Greek term, un, O-U-N, it shows a tight link between verse 8 and verses 5 through 7. In fact, had I had time, I would have covered verse 8 last time with this because it's all part of the same thought pattern. Because Timothy's faith is sincere and his spiritual gift is one of power, Timothy should not be ashamed. Actually, verse 8 is, is perhaps a thesis statement of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through 2.13. It calls for loyalty to Christ and to the gospel, as well as loyalty to Paul himself. As I said again last week in verses 6 and 7, and I remind you again now that we're in verse 8, this does not mean that Timothy is ashamed. When Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, it doesn't mean that Timothy is necessarily ashamed at the time. The majority of New Testament scholarship agrees that the whole Timothy model has probably been somewhat overdone. There's no credible evidence to show that Timothy was a spiritual coward. The verse that we study tonight, verse 8, is a continual call to arms in the face of opposition. Possibility of failure and sin is always present, always merits our close attention. It doesn't matter how mature you get. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Failure is always possible in the Christian life. And the quickest way to fail is to start thinking that you can't. The quickest way to fall in any particular sinful pattern is to say, I could never do that. Paul even mentions that in other places. But but think of Peter and Barnabas. Peter and Barnabas failed. Paul mentions that in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. Peter and Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, 
who sold the land and gave it, laid it all the, the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, who was one of the leaders at the church of Antioch. Barnabas is the one that went and got Paul from Tarsus and brought him back and, and introduced him to the ministries that he would later become so famous for. Barnabas, the one that went on the first missionary journey with Paul. Barnabas, of course, the one that had the argument with Paul over John Mark. Barnabas fails. Peter fails. It was the whole Jew-Gentile thing in, in, uh, that Paul has to mention in, the, in his letter to the Galatians. And the possibility exists for Timothy to fail as well. Paul was concerned that he finished well. If you talk to some of our more senior believers, those who have been walking with the Lord for, for decades upon decades, and you ever get, get time to just sit down and have a fireside chat with them, that's one of the things they're concerned with as well. Finishing well. very close friend of mine. Some of you may remember her. Some of you may not. I, I knew her for almost 20 years before she passed away. Her name was Gloria Toller. Some of you remember Gloria. A, a delightful, delightful lady. And she, she had cancer. It was lung cancer. And it was very painful for her, particularly toward the end, because of the, the treatment that was rendered. Her, her throat was raw with ulcers. But she could still pray. And she was still praying intently for the salvation and the spiritual life following the salvation of her husband, Don. Her prayers were answered. Those of you who know Gloria also know Don. He came to our church for about a year after that. But I never forget Gloria in her last couple of weeks. I would talk to her on the phone, and we had to limit our conversations to just a, a few short moments because it hurt her so badly to talk. But and, and on a couple of occasions, I just said, uh, just listen, I'll talk, and, and you just kind of let me know that you heard me. But I'll never forget, the, it was either the last conversation with her or the next to the last conversation that I had. And these, these sores in her throat were so incredibly painful that it was uh, hard to even live. And she told me, I said, well, isn't there some sort of medication that they can give you a spray and then something that you could swallow? And she said, well, there is. But it's so strong that I really don't want to take it. I said, well, Gloria, why don't you want to take the medication? And she said, because, Bruce, I know I have a very short time left, and I want to do nothing that would have the, even the remotest possibility of affecting my Christian testimony. I want to die with all my faculties in place. I don't want to die on some sort of pain medication. And I talked to her about it, and I, and I told her I didn't think the Lord would mind at all if she took the pain medication. But she was so concerned with finishing well. John Walvard, so concerned, was he not, with finishing well, I mean, that was, that was first and foremost in his mind. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, uh, he, of course, he's not with the Lord yet, but so concerned with finishing well. And Paul wants Timothy to finish well, but he wants himself to also. So the, the possibility exists for failure at any time. Don't ever think that you've achieved a, a point of maturity in your Christian life where you can coast. There is no such thing as coaching. It's not like the Christian life is not like a hill that you get to the top of, and then for the, rest of, for the rest of your life you can coast downhill. In fact, the Christian life is a life of struggle and hardship in a, in a large way. But I don't want to imply to you tonight, because we're going to talk primarily about suffering and hardship, I don't want to imply to you that the Christian life is solely all about suffering and hardship. Because while the Christian life can be difficult and it can be challenging, and the more mature you get, I don't believe it's that, that you get over a hump and start coasting the rest of the way. Actually, the more, more mature you become, the steeper the hill becomes. But the stronger your legs become, 
through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit because of the testing that you've had throughout, throughout your life when the hill wasn't quite so steep. But while we do have a lot of testing and a lot of hardship, that's a reality. To deny that is anti-biblical. Jesus Christ came to give us life, and not only life, but, but, but life abundant. You know who should be the happiest people on the planet are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know who should have the most fun at parties? <coughs> believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Super Bowl party. You know who should have had the most fun at all the Super Bowl parties across the United States on Sunday night were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you should have had a certain amount of relaxation about it. It doesn't matter who won, you're going to heaven one of these days. And it didn't matter who won, both coaches were going to heaven. We couldn't lose there. And did you hear Tony Dungy after the game? i got to stand up and applaud that man. Because the news media was making, a, again, a, a huge issue out of the cultural significance of, of two black or African-American coaches, if you prefer. And when Tony Dungy was asked about it, he said, yes, I'm very proud of that. I'm very happy. I'm very honored to stand on the shoulders of the men that have come before me. But I'm more proud that there were two Christian coaches in the Super Bowl. Go, Tony. <laughs> and I have every, every uh, expectation that Lovey Smith would the same thing. But, but, the, the, but the point is, we should be having a ball here. That, that's almost a paradox, isn't it? We're, we're talking about suffering and not being ashamed and hardship. And now I'm telling you, we should be having a ball here in this life. But we ought to. In the middle of the suffering. Because we know in whom we have believed. Paul's going to say that in either next week's lesson or the weekend after that. And, I, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted him until that day. I should have a ball. Little things shouldn't bother me. The big ones shouldn't either. But like I said in the beginning, sometimes we put our shoulder against the wind and we handle the big ones. And then somebody cuts in front of us in traffic and we lose our sanctification. <laughs> or the dog wets on the carpet. <laughs> and if you could lose your salvation, we'd lose that too. <laughs> So while we talk about suffering and hardship tonight and not being ashamed in the face of these difficulties, we, re we recognize those as a reality, but we also recognize that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly believers who are growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every day, who bathe in his love on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, recognizing that's what it is, we of all people should be having a ball until it's time to go home and then we'll have a greater one. You know that old bumper sticker, I won't quote it exactly, but you know what I mean. Life's a blank, and then you die. If, if you don't know what it is, I'll, I'll let uh, somebody else quote it to you afterwards <laughs> so I can maintain this, this uh, air. <laughs> but uh, actually, that's not, that's not the case with Christians uh, at all. Life's a ball, and then you die, in spite of the hardships. That's the paradox. But I hope to be able to explain it to you as we go through this letter of Second Tim uh, Timothy. So we have to be continually called to arms in the face of opposition. The Greek term translated ashamed here, where Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed. It occurs elsewhere in this chapter where Paul says that he is not ashamed because he knows Christ, and he knows that Christ can guard him and the gospel. And also where Paul points out that um, Onesiphorus is not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment in verse 16. It's the same sentiment seen in Paul's affirmation that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God's salvation. The specific object of shame here is identified as the testimony of the Lord. This word testimony refers 
to the gospel message and the proclamation of it. We should not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now, wait just a minute. Hold on. Why would Paul have to tell Timothy that? Why would the Holy Spirit have to record that for us? You would think that that would be the last thing on our agenda, to be ashamed either of Jesus Christ, of what he did, or the proclamation of his gospel. But the reality is, that's a tendency of our human sinful natures, to be ashamed of the very one that sought us, that saved us, and that keeps us by his grace on a moment-by-moment basis. We become timid. And I say that as an editorial we. I'm speaking for all of us now. I'm not asked for any show of hands, but I don't care who we are in this room. Every single one of us has become timid at one time or another in a witnessing or a ministerial situation. What are people going to think of me? Is he going to still be my friend after we're finished? Will she still go to the movie with me this weekend if I talk to her about the Lord Jesus Christ today? So while this is directed to Timothy directly, the larger audience is you and me. We can't be ashamed. We should not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, what he did, who he was, and what he did for us. Or of me, Paul says, his prisoner. We can't do that. From a humanist point of view, there is much in the gospel of which to be ashamed. From a strictly secular point of view, not from a Christian point of view, but from the humanist point of view, it was the message of a failed prophet, rejected by the people. This man, Jesus, was crucified by Roman power. And his word was preached by a collection of fishermen and other undesirables. Remember Matthew? Tax collector? You want me to listen to him? It might be easy to shrink away and say, well, you know, I never thought that guy Matthew should have been included with us in the first place. You know, Wouldn't it be easy to do that? A tax collector. You know why tax collectors were so scorned in the day of Jesus Christ and all throughout that period? Let me give you just a brief historical overview of at least just one of the people that was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ And while Paul says, don't be ashamed of me, it's extended. Don't be ashamed of John. Don't be ashamed of Peter. Don't be ashamed of Matthew. If the Romans, and this doesn't come from from biblical literature, it comes from extra biblical historical literature, but if the Romans, say, in a province, wanted to raise $1 million, let's, let's don't use their currency, let's use ours so that we can have a decent understanding of it. If they wanted to raise $1 million, they would have put it out for bid. They didn't have an IRS per se. They would put their tax tax collections up for bid to the highest bidder. So let's say they wanted a million dollars out of Palestine that year, or that area, Syria, if you will, southern Syria. And say someone got, in order to get the bid, had to bid $1.5 million. He was the high bidder. So he's bid $1.5 million, so now this is what Rome wants. In that, when, when this guy gets finished, he's got to give $1.5 million to Rome. He can't collect all those taxes by himself, so he's got to hire people to do it. So in order to, to make this profitable for him, he may very well have to collect $3 million from the province, whichever province it would be. Let's say it's Palestine. 
So in order to get Rome, the one million's not a pertinent figure anymore. In order to get Rome, it's one million, or rather 1.5 million. This tax collector is going to have to collect probably three million to pay all the people that are collecting taxes for him and to get a little cut of the action himself. There's no point in doing it if you don't make a little profit. So now you're Matthew, and you go out to the people in the province with, along with your other folks and say, hey, listen, uh, your tax bill is now doubled from last year. How so? <laughs> because I say so. You think we have problems with taxes. You should have seen them. You, when I finish this, you're going to see why Matthew was despised. They said, uh, you go away because I'm not paying the taxes. Okay. Wait right here. I'll be back in about half an hour. Tax collector would go away. He'd come back in about half an hour with a Roman garrison. And you either paid your taxes or you wish you would have. Now, in the historical accounts, there's no record of extreme violence taking place in Palestine. Apparently, the Jews would go ahead and pay. They would just talk bad about it after it took place. In Sicily, if you read the historical accounts of Roman history and Sicilian tax collectors, there were legs broken regularly. Then you paid your taxes. Well, even Matthew, you can see now why people would say, Matthew? Him? You see why from a secular level, from a strictly humanist level, people would look at Christianity and say, what are you talking about? These aren't the scholars. These aren't the philosophers. This isn't Plato, Socrates, or Aristotle pushing this. This is a band of ragamuffins and people that we should be ashamed of. And in another way, the message they claimed was foolishness in the eyes of the Greek world, especially the eyes of the intelligentsia. In a very real way, I pity those who are of that category, the intellectual elite. Their IQs may, and I say may, be a few points higher than most, but in their pride, they can't see the forest for the trees. And as the scriptures say, professing to be wise, they become fools. So the intelligentsia didn't care for the message because it was silliness to them. And there was... Also, at a superficial level, much to be ashamed about with Paul, a man who met constant opposition and was at the present time imprisoned in Rome. Paul wouldn't be appreciated today. Paul would not have had the biggest church today. Paul would have ended up in Rome. In a, in a, if Paul had ended up in a prison here today, you know what people would have said about him? Well, he must not be walking in fellowship with God if he's in prison. No way. You know. Pastor so-and-so down the street has got 25,000. You thought I was going to say a name, didn't you? <laughs> I decided not to. Pastor so-and-so down the street has got 25,000 people. You know, it's got this huge $96 million facility. That guy must be in the will of God. No way Paul could be because he's in prison. And everywhere he goes, people either beat him up or run him out of town. So on the surface... On the surface, at a very superficial level, at a very humanist level, there were things to be ashamed about the gospel on the surface. But Timothy was not to be ashamed. In fact, he was called upon to share in the suffering for this very gospel with Paul. The, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And regardless of opposition or intellectual snobbery, 
it is nothing to be ashamed of. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Don't let that, that one little pronoun slide past you. He, his prisoner. Paul doesn't say here, or, or don't be ashamed of me, the prisoner of the Roman Emperor Nero. Paul considered himself to be the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not suffering as a criminal, but he was suffering as a messenger of the gospel. And the only reason that he was in prison is because the Lord allowed it, period. So Paul knew there wasn't any real point in him trying to knock a guard in the head to escape. Because he was there only because the Lord permitted it. The Lord didn't want him in prison. He was going to get out, just like he did the first time. He won't get out this, this last time. The, the Lord wanted to take him on home. This is the way he used to do it. Well, you know, for you and me both, the only reason hardships come your way is because the Lord allows it. And as J. Vernon McGee used to say, the Lord seldom explains to us why. And sometimes it's futile to ask that question. Now, the prophets did. The prophets would ask why. The prophets would ask, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow this to go on? The prophets never got angry with God, though. A couple of them got a little sassy or borderline. <laughs> one guy's one, the prophet, Job. In my view, he wasn't, at least not the classical prophet. He got a little sassy with God, and then you saw what happened in the last part of that book. God sat him down told him how the cow ate the cabbage. And then explained to him that he was God, Job was not, and you need to sit down and listen, son. So as you can tell me where, where, where so you can tell me where you were when I created this whole thing, then you can have a conversation with me. And then Job got the point, and everything was okay. True, your suffering may be self-induced to a degree, but the only reason consequences of bad decisions are felt is because God permits it. This doesn't mean God's mean. It doesn't mean He's anything less than omnibenevolent or all all loving. But nothing gets through to you that didn't pass through God's fingers first. And I know a lot of you are suffering. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it all. I know some of you are suffering greatly even tonight. And I'm not trying to minimize that in any way. Because suffering is painful. Otherwise, I wouldn't call it suffering. But i got to tell you, it didn't catch God by surprise. And he wouldn't have allowed it to get through to you if you didn't have the spiritual resources already within you to handle it. Now, you may say, Lord, I appreciate you think that I'm that mature, <laughs> but I don't think I can do this. You know what? If you do that, then it's, you're kind of right where the Lord wants you anyway. Because he wants you to admit that you need him desperately. And the more mature you are, the quicker you'll admit it when life's difficulties come at you 100 miles an hour. Nobody in their right mind rushes toward suffering. But Paul calls on Timothy to suffer along with him. He must be willing to take his share of persecution, not in his own power, which would be impossible, but according to the power of God. That power is infinite, and it will enable a person to endure even to the point of death. Just like the Apostle Paul would experience some short months after he writes this letter. This doesn't mean that Paul is expecting Timothy to come join him in chains in that dreary prison in Rome. That's Paul's burden to bear. That's not Timothy's. And that burden will become no lighter if Timothy was to be in chains as well right next to him. The whole thing about misery loves company, that wasn't Paul's philosophy. That's not what he's saying here. Timothy will have his own suffering to endure. I have my own suffering to endure. 
you have your own suffering to endure. If I was to tell you what bothers me, you would probably think less of me. If you were to tell me what was bothering you, I would probably try not to, but I might think less of you too. Because what bothers me may not bother you and vice versa. God knows what to allow in each person's life. Timothy doesn't have to go looking for suffering. It'll find him. Thank you very much. For Timothy, it was the onslaught of false teachers in Ephesus, the constant rebellion against his leadership, the slights because of his relative youth, and probably a a hundred other things that we know nothing about. These are the things that Timothy would have to bear. Later on, if we're to understand the the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, the way I, I think it's to be understood, Timothy will end up in prison. Don't know much about the circumstances of his imprisonment, but the writer to the book of Hebrews talks about Timothy being released. We assume that means released from prison. So Timothy will get there, but for right now he's got other burdens to bear. When you see another believer in the Lord Jesus Christ bearing their burdens, it doesn't mean for you to be mature you've got to rush out and try to get the same problem. That's not the point. It doesn't mean you ought to rush out and look for suffering at all. That's not the point either. It'll come to you. But when it does, just know, just know that God still loves you. And he loves you so deeply. And he wouldn't allow that suffering to come to you first if you couldn't handle it. And second, if he didn't know you had the potential because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to glorify him through it. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will endure hardship and suffering in this life. That is a reality. We are called upon to handle whatever comes our way without shrinking back in shame, but rather boldly standing up for our Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit.